I ask you this morning to take your Bibles and turn them with me, please, to Hebrews 5. Just turn back to the left a few, a few pages. should run right into it. Hebrews chapter 5. Let me give you a preface of what you've stepped into today. If you were here last week and if you were listening at any amount of what I had to say, I had every intention in speaking on intercessory prayer, praying for other people this week, for today. And it was amazing because there was a lot that started to overshadow my mind. And it was full of discouragement and disappointment. Thinking, well, our problem is, is we're just not interceding for people. That's our big problem. And then here came the enemy. And boy, am I going to let him have it on Sunday. I'm going to make sure that everybody's so guilt-ridden with how terrible they've been with prayer. They walk out of here changed people. And you know who was sitting on my shoulder. And as I was walking into the house, my wife said, how's your day? And I began to cry. To think about how incredibly self-righteous I am. And a thought hit me. Jeremy, when are you going to start being the man that I want you to be? It's got to start sometime. So when's it going to start? And I had a moment with God that was of brokenheartedness. Because you get on a path where you think, I'm right here. I'm right. I'm right. And yet I knew in the back of my mind, the Lord letting me know, you don't seek me as you ought to. I'm so worried about the specks in your eyes that I can't see the log of my own. And thankfully, the Lord carries around a very gentle two-by-four of which He loves me and He disciplines me to Himself. So here's what we're going to do today. And you may not like it, and I'm okay with it. And I haven't had to do this since I started graduate work. I actually wrote my sermon today. I never do that. I hate notes. I hate them. That's why I get large margins in my Bible so I can write small and hopefully be able to see them. But now that in my old age, my eyesight is failing me. It's not working out so well. But I got up early every day this week and spent quality time with the Lord asking what He wanted. It's been hard for me to do since the baby was born. We appreciate your prayers on that because he slept through the night the past two nights. We're, you know, you know how it is. Is he dead? You know, <laughs> you guys remember that? The first time they sleep, you're like, oh, yeah. So you're checking, checking the monitor. Okay. So that being said, I, I'm, I'm not planning on reading my sermon. Please don't mistake for that. I'm not going to tell you how many pages I have. Um, but I am going to reference it because it's the result of me spending a lot of quiet time with the Lord and His Word. I think it's important to share. And I'll go ahead and tell you I've never prepared a sermon like this, so 
If it stinks, then give a, give a thumbs down on our Google page or something. I don't know. What do people do now? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Pray about it. If you have a if you have a, your notes page in your bulletin, and if you take notes, I'd ask that you do. But I just want you to write one word. Priorities. Priorities. What are your chief priorities in life? Maybe through this you'll think about it, you'll list them. The things that are most important to me, the things that I hold dear. One good way to find that is to look at your calendar. You know, it's so funny, I've, I often ask my wife, I often check with her, what do you got going on this week? I look at the calendar on the fridge, it's like the master calendar of what she's doing and that kind of thing, so I can check it. See, I so wish that we could, well, our phones, we can sync calendars together. See, I so wish we could do our calendars together, and she takes a look at the calendar on the phone, she goes, I don't want your calendar on my phone, it freaks me out. <laughs> she's like, you're doing this and this and this and this, she's like, it stresses me out, I don't want that. Your calendar dictates your priorities. What you're planning. What are you anticipating? What are you most looking forward to? That'll tell you what's important to you. What are the relationships that you esteem or that you avoid? Maybe you can take your notes and put two sides. Good relationships, bad relationships. I want to be in these relationships, and so I make them a priority. I don't want to be in these relationships, so they become secondary or less. So as believers in Jesus, and if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a priest, right? God made you that. Hopefully that's clear so far from what we've looked at. If we're priests who are to serve him, let me ask you the question, what are your priorities in that context? Because if we recognize what our priorities here and then we think about, wait a second, yes, I am a believer priest and these are my priorities is that, and they're different lists, we have a disconnect. Because there's never a time that we stop being a believer priest. A believer priest is not where we put on a robe in a moment and we become that. We are that. Today you didn't come to church. You came to a building that we've designated under the heading of Grace Bible Church. But you are the church regardless of what you're doing. In the same way you are a believer priest because Jesus Christ has made you that. The option within our hands is we either cultivate that, we either propagate that, we help that along, we foster that, we nourish that, we nurture that, and we grow in that role. And we, get, we begin to experience things about God that we would otherwise not know. Or we live in denial of who He has said that we are. And I don't know about you, but when we live in denial of who we truly are, that's called acting. It's putting on a different face. It's not true. How does being a believer priest affect your priorities? It is often a failure to believe what God says about who we are that keeps us from prioritizing the right things. And I hope today that when we stand up and leave out of here, that will be corrected because we understand that what God wants is the most important thing. We're going to identify what that is. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We're going to learn from Jesus. What did he prioritize in his life 
And since his life is a model of how to live in fellowship with the Father, how does that relate to us? Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. And so what's he saying here? He's saying that a priest, as called by the law of God, and being in a succession, you've got a problem with this priesthood. Not only are they going on behalf of people and offering on behalf of people, they got to offer on behalf of themselves. And so they're tainted. And they need redemption just as they're seeking out redemption for the people. But then you have a change. It says here, verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we spent some time recognizing when Jesus raised from the dead, he now took on this role as a priest offering the blood of himself on behalf of you and me, but never for himself. He did not need a sacrifice to redeem him. He is the Redeemer. So it says here, verse 7, and this is the verse that wouldn't let me go. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death And he was heard because of his piety. We don't use that word a lot, piety. It's not talking about pie. Some of us were reading those lyrics in the song, though Satan may buffet, that's not what it says. Okay, Though Satan may buffet. You're like, yeah, Satan is at the buffet, I know that. It's not what it's talking about. So what I want us to do is grab verse 7. Because it's telling us something very distinct about how Jesus lived his life. And I want us to see that as he modeled his life, so it is to be reflective of us and how we live. So let's break down each little phrase that we have here. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, this speaks of what we commonly call the incarnation. The fact that God would tabernacle, is how it's phrased, make his dwelling place amongst people. Jesus Christ exists in something, here's a $5 word for you, the hypostatic union. And it's the idea that he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. It's the fact that he is able to give wisdom to people in situations, and you think, good grief, that's so profound. His sayings and his parables are so simple. And you say, yeah, I can understand that. But then you wrestle with it for months and even years. And you recognize how profound it is. Only God can do that. When we see the instance where there's a storm on the Sea of Galilee and he steps to the front of the boat and he says, peace be still, and everything quiets in an instant. Only God can do that. 
So there was never a time when he wasn't proving his godhood while he was on earth in the days of his flesh. But understand, he was also very much 100% man. He slept. In fact, that's where they found him whenever the boat was going crazy, right? How is he sleeping through this? He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. Yet he's born just like you and me. Came into the world just like you and I. And yet he makes the world. He creates all things. Visible, invisible, age upon age, knowing beginning to end. All of it is established in his wisdom and his counsel. So when we speak about in the days of his flesh, it's incredibly profound. Why? Because God is showing us how to live for God in a real-life, tangible example. Notice the next phrase here. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications. Everybody see the word offered? Like a priest. He's bringing some sort of offering before God. And if you were here last week, you will notice it. We spoke about the altar of incense had to be stationed in a very particular place when you walked into the beginning part of the tabernacle or the temple. You would have the showbread on one side, you would have the menorah on the other side, but you could not go through the veil to the Holy of Holies without walking around this altar of incense. It very much made its presence known, and the incense there is representative of prayers that are offered up. That's how you come to God. In fact, it would be wise for every one of us when we come with prayers, understanding that they're an offering to God to recognize that when we pray, we come into His presence. We are in the presence of God when we are praying. Though He's God, He still prayed. You ever stopped and wondered at that? Jesus is God, and He prayed. Well, that's easy. He's crazy. He's just talking to Himself. Is that what he's doing? No. Or is he communing with the Trinity? We should use that word more, communing. Often we limit it to the table. We think of it as the remembrance of Jesus' body and blood through bread and wine, and that's about as far as it goes. But to commune is to interface with God, to harmonize with Him. And Jesus did just that. In fact, He came to the Father in regular intervals for long periods of time to sit down and have deeply personal and intimate conversation. Why? Because He understood that His relationship with His Father was the most important relationship He could ever have in His time on earth. If you're around the church world and you know my... uh, Slight irritability at this phrase. But a lot of people talk about, I'm building relationships, I'm building relationships. Have you noticed that there's way too many relationships out there to build to get to them all? I'm thinking that maybe the the priority we need to have is building our relationship with God. A quality, intimate relationship with Him, and then watch Him build these other relationships around us. That really takes a lot of weight off of our shoulders. If I'm solely concerned about spending time with God like Jesus spent time with God, the relationships happen. I don't have to build them. All I have to do is pour into a relationship with one. 
Maybe we should think about prioritizing that. How did Jesus build a relationship with God and turn it into a fellowship experience? Well, through prayers and supplication. Let's break this down. Prayers. If I'm looking in a lexicon for a definition of prayers, here's what I'm getting. An asking, entreaty, or supplication. And immediately you might think of that definition, you might think, okay, wait a second, if prayers could possibly mean supplication, and it says prayers and supplication, is this double speak? No. Understand, there are no wasted words in God's Word. God means every one of them for purpose. Each one of them has meaning. Each one of them is meant to leave an impact on you and me. So when we think of this idea here, in the days of His flesh, He offered up prayers and supplications. We could probably define prayer as a petition to a supreme. To the one who is great. Now to bring some more clarity to this, the word supplications, if you want to write down a definition for that. You find most readily it means a suppliant. And what does that mean? It means a person who brings a humble plea before a power or an authority. Some would understand this as beseeching. You might even dare to get into the realm of begging someone because you've humbled yourself before them and you're seeking for their favor. It would seem that prayer speaks of the contents and the frequency of what should happen, while supplications is going to speak of the attitude by which our requests are made. Do you not see that in Jesus' life? In fact, what I think is interesting is we see Jesus get angry, right? One of the most profound things we can think upon is him getting that whip of cords ready to go into the temple and drive some people out. And yet there was never a time that he wasn't reverential. There's never a time that he wasn't humbly submitting himself to the Father. In fact, you go through and you find instances where he comes voluntarily under the Father and he seeks him out in prayer. And the attitude always permeates through the text. It's a humility in coming into conversation with Him. So prayer deals with our asking and supplication deals with our recognition of His Lordship. The fact that He has a supreme role. If you have an audience with the King, hopefully you treat that opportunity differently than you would talking to me or Zach or anybody else that's really nobody. You find that your demeanor changes. Maybe you stand up a little bit straighter. Maybe you recognize simple things like how you're phrasing words. You know, uh uh-huh, quickly becomes yes. Those types of things. Please and thank you are more readily at the front of your lips. So we must ask if our beseeching petitions are being answered by this king. I hope your prayer situation is not mundane. If it is, we've lost sight of who we're talking to. We often hear put together the phrase vibrant prayer. Is your prayer life vibrant? Are your prayers with God ritualistic? This is what I have to do. It's the same customary prayer. Well, I just pray the prayer that God gave to the disciples, our Father in heaven, and I'm kind of good to go for the day. Are you having a conversation with a sovereign? Are your prayers being answered? 
That's a good question. Do I see God answering my prayers? That makes me ask some questions. Is my heart right? Is my mind right? Do I think about Him correctly? And is my adoration of Him and my thanksgiving of Him and my confession of my sin and my asking of Him and His involvement in situations, whether they're near or far, are those things correct? I'm not saying we have to have perfection all the way around, but if we're coming into a conversation with someone like God, words matter. Attitude matters. The heart matters. I think that if we were to do a quick inventory on these areas, hopefully it would reset us for a time with the king. I think prayers also speaks to the matter of frequency. I'm not talking about we bring a thousand things that we have in front of the Lord and just spill them out in front of Him. But it would seem that the pluralization of these things, prayers and supplications, would lend itself more to the fact that we're bringing the same things over and over to Him often. I don't know about you, but there are some things that burden me. And it's not that I'm necessarily not trusting that God will take those things, even though that is there creeping in. Doubt wants to get me a lot. And I have to come back to the Word and reset my mind about who God is and what He can do. But it's the idea that I need to keep bringing those things before God. You may... Scene. You may remember... God gave a parable, excuse me, Jesus gave a parable one time in Luke 18 about a widow who kept bugging an unrighteous judge. Everybody remember that one? She kept coming to him over and over and over. And she had one request. She wanted legal protection against her opponent. We don't know what all that means. Maybe... Someone was trying to come in because her husband was gone and steal her property for themselves, and maybe she had no way to defend it. We don't know. But it said because of her constant coming, let's dare say it, she was annoying. The righteous judge said, if I don't grant her request, she's going to keep coming to me. Now don't let your mind go further in that than you need to. The Father is not annoyed with us at all. In fact, it's beautiful how Jesus turns this and shows if this is the way an unrighteous judge would receive someone who comes often, how much more your Father in heaven? Since He's good, wouldn't He want to grant the requests of His children when they keep coming before Him? Why? Because the Father loves justice. And when you're petitioning Him for the right things, the right contents, why would He not want those things to be? Why would He not want to take your current life situation and orchestrate it? So that would happen. Jesus models the proper approach to God. It's through prayer, frequently petitioning Him, beseeching or begging His involvement, Because the core of our request before Him is in alignment with His Word. Look at our next part in this verse 7. In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying 
and tears. This is Jesus displaying His compassion and His sensitivity about the needs at hand. Jesus was personally interested. He's invested. His heart's in it. He's involved. We've been sold this lie that God is distant and unconcerned. That's not what Jesus models. Jesus did not expend emotion flippantly. Because He's God, He's deeply sympathetic to the causes being offered up to the Father. This is not emotionalism, but it's His heart. God is personal. Jesus is personal. He's invested. Why would He grieve? I mean, think about what it says here. Loud crying. He didn't just cry, He was loud. With tears. You think that there's enough in this world to grieve God. Even in Jesus' day, we think about, well, it's not as bad you know, in Jesus' day as it is now. Even in Jesus' day, He found things to cry over. To be upset and to be sorrowful. Why? Because sin is always the culprit to sorrow. Every time. It's no different with our Lord. You ever had loud crying and tears with your prayers? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would guarantee that there's everything right with that. Because when our hearts are grieved over something sinful in our lives that we're having to deal with, we see somebody from afar that's participating in sin, and there's everything in us that says, don't you realize that God has so much better for you than what you are settling for? Don't be a fool. Look to His Word. And we cry out to God to get His mighty hand involved in this. Why? Because we can sit here and guilt people about behavior, but we can't change hearts. Only God can do that. That's the reason why we come to Him. We come to Him because He's the person that can make the difference. He's the only one. So if you sorrow over sin, and you find yourself weeping, over your own failure, over the failure of others. Recognize something very profound that you are experiencing as a human being. You actually find yourself in great fellowship with God. Why? Because God's heart aches over sin, over the choices of people, over the decisions to to do the dumb thing, to deny God's existence, to deny God's opinion. To come at God's Word is something that's trivial and up for grabs and can be interpreted by anybody. We have to remember our world is not just dangerous, it's highly foolish. And I don't know about you, but everything I see out in front of me as far as this world is concerned can easily drive you to tears. The sheer fact that people are shirking personal responsibility in light of the things that they've done wrong some of the most contradictory things I've ever understood in my life. And yet the Bible preaches page after page. You are responsible for responding to a God who has revealed Himself. It's tragic. So when we sit here and we read loud cries and tears, we see that He's probably wailing over situations. I can understand it. Satan weaves a web that is not just sticky, but it's suffocating. So what else can you do but petition the Lord? 
What else can you do but ask him to get involved? To cry out to him, to know his word and know what he's capable of. And then ask him to be the difference that he is and he can be in every situation. Jesus being perfectly God still submitted himself in those types of situations. Whether you have sin rearing its head on a large stage or whether it's becoming abundantly clear, just in my case, that's taken hold of your heart, we must recognize that it's wrong because the Father says it's wrong and it's sin because the Word says that it's sin. So it's not wrong to sorrow. That's part of what creates this humble petition for prayer. Now I think that this next phrase is interesting. Notice in verse 7, let's read it again. I want you to be very familiar with this by the time you walk out. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. This is an interesting point. To the one able to save him from death. To the one able to save him from death. Is death certain? Is death final? No. See, that's the difference maker. You've often heard the phrase, we pay our taxes and we die. That's a person with no hope. That's a person that's confined to this world only. That's a person that needs to hear about Jesus Christ and everlasting life. This is the one who Jesus entrusts himself to. Some people, commentaries, consider that he's speaking specifically about his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before he was betrayed. There's no reason to doubt that. But our emphasis is on the days of his flesh, his life. How did he live his life? Jesus' life was always a life of deferment to the Father. What did he say? Not my will, but what? Thy will be done. See, we even know the King James on that. That's how holy we are. Thy will be done. It wasn't ever about where Jesus wanted to go. It's about where the Father sent him. It was never about, well, Jesus decided he wanted to do this. Jesus never compartmentalized His earthly life is something separate from God's will for his life. They were one and the same, and he didn't buy into this foolish marker that divided the two. Let me tell you something. It doesn't exist. This is something that the world has sold the church. You can be this person and live this way, and here's how we stress it. I just need some me time. Me time is never a failure or a ceasing to be a child of God. You need a break? Great. Get alone with God. What else is going to help you? I can't find anything. I need a vacation. Cool. God's there. He went with you. Make sure He wanted you to go. Jesus' life was always a life of deferment. Because God is the only one who can save us from death, God's the only one worth petitioning. Now we come to a point that the author of Hebrews makes that is unnerving. And when you think about the life of Jesus and you think about who He is and you think about what He's offering to God with prayers and supplication, loud crying and tears, 
He's got singular focus on who God is and what He's able to do. And look what it says at the end of this. And He was heard. Everybody see that? He was heard because of His piety. If you don't have a phobia of marking in your Bibles, mark it. He was heard because of His piety. Jesus prayed. He approached the Father reverently. Humility clothed every word that He uttered. He was brought to tears and wailing over the things that burdened Him. And all of it is communication in one direction. But what should strike us is the fact that His words were received. Does everybody see that? He was heard because of His piety. Now sadly, we as husbands have developed an incredibly strange art. It's called selective hearing. Brother, don't get me started. And we know this because the response is often, Honey, because we're really trying to pat it here. Honey, what did you say? And she has to repeat it again. And if we're going to be honest, we only got about two, three words out of the second time too. Because there's something in us that has developed a failure to respond as we ought to. We pray, but does God hear? And we should have an answer for that. What scares me is you say, well, I hope so. Or we get extremely presumptuous about it, and we answer yes prematurely. Yes, of course he hears me. Absolutely. And then I have to go back to what we read earlier in 1 Peter 3. Husbands, how are you treating your wives? Because if it's not well, and you've not confessed it, you are not in fellowship with the Father, and your prayers are hindered. They are bound up. They are arrested. And he's not listening. Why was Jesus heard? Because of his piety. Well, of course he was pious. He was God. You know what's interesting? If you go on through this verse, in fact, if you look at the next verse, verse 8, although he was a son, very much so, yeah, that's why it's capitalized. Look what it says. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Even though he's God and knows all things, he needed to get in there and experience life and respond well in trusting reliance and deferment in every situation upon the Father. There was still something to cultivate in this earthly life because it was unlike anything that God had done up until that point. And so how did Jesus handle it? Righteously. What does it mean? For God to listen to us. Think about it. In fact, if you're taking notes, write it down. Does God receive or listen to my prayers? I don't know about you, but I'd want an answer to that. And how do you answer that question? Well, here's a question. Do you see answered prayer in your life? This is one good thing about keeping a journal of prayer requests. 
Get you a prayer request journal. On this day, I am beseeching the Lord on this matter. Every day. Numerous times a day. Petitioning Him. Coming humbly before Him. Recognizing that I'm in the presence of a king. And if we're not seeing answered prayer, we have to ask ourselves, it might be because I'm not pious. Now see, this is unnerving. Because now I'm going to ask you the question, are you pious? We would think it's foolhardy to say yes, wouldn't we? Well, yeah, I'm pious. Are you? I don't think it's a wrong question to ask. Because it seems here in this text that piety is a contingency on the Father hearing, listening to our prayers. I'm sorry, what's that? It's not pursued directly. Explain. The work of Christ. Explain. Okay, so we rely on Christ and His propitiation. Big word, guys. For our sins, his satisfaction for our sins comes back around. Here's a problem I think we often hit with this. Is we assume because we've been brought into a righteous position with him because of Jesus that God listens to our prayers. I don't know that that's always the case. In some, yes. But there are too many things I see in the Bible where offering prayers as believer priests before the Lord is not a matter of position, but a matter that regards our practice. It's not about our coming into relationship with Him. But instead, it's about whether or not we're experiencing fellowship with Him. And that's what makes the difference in whether we have answered prayers. Now, I understand some of you don't like that. That doesn't sound very gracious. Give me a moment. I'm not to that page yet. There's a contingency. And piety is that contingency. What does piety mean? Piety is holiness. If you want a more plain word to understand it, holiness, set-apartness is what it is. In fact, if you were to get out a lexicon, maybe a Strong's or something, and you look at this word piety in there, you would find that it actually means reverence and godly fear. That's how it's defined. But it's the idea of recognizing who God is and what He's capable of doing, and that being what dictates how you make decisions and live your life. It's not that Jesus was just pious in the moment of prayer. I better get my act together now if this is going to get answered. That's like those bumper stickers, Jesus is coming, look busy. It's not like that. That doesn't fly with Him. God loves me enough to be concerned about my entire life and what I'm surrounding myself with. Holiness is understanding that in the midst of this evil world, only what God says and the person of who He is matters in every moment. This isn't religiosity, legalism, law-keeping. This isn't about making sure that you've polished all the rules time and time again. It's an understanding that we have. It's a walking with Him where He's brought us deeper. 
It's as He's revealed Himself in His Word, moment by moment, concept by concept, page by page. And we are responding as receiving it. We're responsible with that in bringing that attitude of reverence to Him that He begins to take us deeper and deeper and bringing us into this experience. And let me tell you, it is an experience. Do you have an experience when you pray? That's not charismatic. It's biblical. Why else would you be overshadowed with tears when you're grieving over a sinful situation? Because you're experiencing fellowship with God's heart because He grieves about it as well. So please don't run rapid and think all of a sudden I've started speaking in tongues and running the aisles and got my glory fan out. That's not what's going on here. Anyone can pray. Anyone can speak out words. Anyone can talk to a deity. Quotation marks. But to be heard by the Almighty in a powerful way. To have an audience with the King to which you can anticipate a response. And you can wait upon the King to deliver what you've asked of Him because it is in complete alignment with His Word. You don't have to be boastful about this, but you can be confident that's pious. That's a life that's marked by holiness. Holiness is never about you and I becoming more powerful. It's always about trusting Him more. It's always about deferment. It's always about dependence. It's always about saying, I have no answers. God is the only one who can answer. It's not I just need to get my act together and experience the Spirit more and try a little bit harder in those things. That is all self-effort and it falls on deaf ears before God. Let me give you an example of this. And by the way, I will go ahead and say I love each and every one of you. We are going long today. Turn over one book to James 1. I hope this will not be needlessly going long. But let me show you this same concept from a different angle. James chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Now this is talking about in the context of suffering. When you're going through a hard time, do you get confused and mixed up about what to do next? I'm going to say, amen, 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 right? So how do I deal with that? Here's the problem. The problem is you lack wisdom in a situation. Let him ask of God. What do we call that? Prayer. Ask God to get involved. Look what it says who gives to all generously and without reproach. It's like he's inviting you, please come to me. You don't have the answers. Let's settle that fact and let me provide for you. I want to do this for you. And I want to do it in such a way that makes your head spin. That's what the word generously means. He wants to overgrace you with his provision. But we got to recognize that we don't have answers and come to him and ask of him. So notice, he gives all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. Not, mm, maybe, hope so. It will. Now watch what happens here, because we're going to see a key ingredient to holiness. But he must ask in what? Can God do what he said he's done? He's given us 66 books to testify. It's a testimony. 
It's an account. It's a record of what he's capable of. Do we believe that? When you ask, you must come in faith. Look what it says. Without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why waste your breath when you don't believe he can do it? Don't even speak. But if you're lacking wisdom and you need direction, ask of him. Notice that's not a relationship situation. That's a fellowship situation. Look what it says. That a man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Why? Because there's no faith. Faith is the key ingredients to holiness. Believing who God is, what He can do, and what He has said. If we're believing that and we come to Him without doubting, we're asking for His guides without doubting, that's holiness. It is a bankruptcy of self and all schemes I could design and a casting of myself saying, Lord, I need you. I need you to be involved in this. Only you have the answer. And I will wait on you for that answer. Holiness is a matter of consecration. It's reverence. It's godly fear. We love to throw up, what about grace? What about grace? I don't know about you, but an almighty creator who wants to take me deeper with him, that is grace. Because any depth that I would ever go with him, I don't deserve to be there. But yet he lovingly works with me and with you to reveal a little more about himself along the way. Grace brings you into the presence of the Father, but piety brings you to his feet. Grace imparts eternal life freely, but holiness imparts the abundant life of Jesus in you. Grace makes us a child, but godly fear and reverence makes us sons and daughters. What we often fail to see is that grace brings us into piety and holiness and reverence and godly fear. I don't know how else we would get to that depth with Him. The reason that God allows us to go deeper is because of our response to what He shows us. But if you've neglected His Word, I guarantee you this, prayer is not a priority. At least you don't see it as one. Here's another good one. Thankfully, we're in the same book, but you can turn over just a couple of pages, maybe to chapter 5. Let's start in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? If you're here today, and you're going through a hardship, and that's not a hardship that has happened in your life due to your own sin putting you in that position. That's called the school of hard knocks, and hopefully you're learning very humbly about what that is and how to avoid it later. But if you find that because of the life that you live in intimate connection with Jesus, hard times have come upon you, and you've got a problem, suffering, what is the prescription? What's he tell us? He should what? Pray. He must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Anybody here happy? Anybody here grateful for the Lord? You should do what? Sing. 
What's that? We do that. I love the fact that James doesn't say, and if you can't carry a tune in the bucket, just be quiet, be cheerful on your own. He doesn't say that. He says, sing it. I remember when Emily first got here, and she said, I believe everyone should sing. And I looked over her like, what is she thinking? I definitely shouldn't be singing. You know what? She understands James 5.13 a lot better than I do. If you're cheerful, if you're excited about what God's doing in your life and how you see Him working, sing about it. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? How about the next one? Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? What do you do? Clear problem? Sick, right? And this almost gives this idea of the reason why you have an ailment is possibly because of sin you've entertained in your life. You'll see that. Watch this. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Elders, raise your hands. If you're sick, call on us. This is obviously part of our ministry description to come to you where you are and to pray for you. Now the oil part gets trivial, but if I've got to take some Wesson and put it on your head, so be it. The important thing is that we're seeking the face of the Lord on your behalf. In other words, when sickness is involved, possibly due to sin, the elders are to be involved in intercessory prayer for that person, with that person. It's obviously personal. Prayer's the answer. Look what it says here, verse 15, in the prayer offered in, what's that? Faith, believing. There it is. Will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, because it's a possibility, and that's the reason why sickness has come about, they will be forgiven of him. In other words, fellowship will be restored. I've not received one call. Pastor, I'm sick. Can you come pray on my behalf? Take me up on that. Call me. Don't email me. I won't get there as quickly. But call me. Text me. Let me know that you need me there. So that we can pray. Why? Because you need healing. And if sins are what you got you into this mess, then forgiveness is what gets you out of it. Let's not spend one moment more separated from fellowship with the Lord. Verse 16, therefore, watch this. Confess your sins to one another. Look around, look around. That's who you're supposed to confess your sins to. One another. And I'm to confess my sins to you. It's not only cathartic, it's biblical. Well, people would freak out if they knew what I did. No, you would freak out if you knew what I did. Not one person in here is better than the other. We are all equals at the feet of Christ. The question is, are we meeting there at His feet? Lock arms. Let's go together. Look what it says. Confess your sins to one another. And there it is again. Pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. Back into fellowship. Now watch this. The effective prayer of a what? Righteous man can accomplish much. Is this positional righteousness because they believed in Christ? No. It's a life of holiness, practical righteousness. How I live my life in submission to the Father and His Word. 
What does God want? That's what I'm doing. Guess what? That's a holy life. It is a life that is not lived on your own. You know what you can guarantee out of that? Because it will change the way that you pray. And let's go ahead and say the dirty little secret out loud. When you hear someone pray out loud, you can tell whether or not they've spent time with the Lord and whether or not they're in fellowship with the Lord. You can. You can know it. God built us with really good detectors. So if that's the case, and we want our prayers to be effective, holiness is a key. And holiness is a direct byproduct of believing everything that God has told us. So look what it says. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Here's your example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Some translations say he had passions like ours. That doesn't mean something sick. It means that he's like you and me. There's nothing special about him. But he had a calling from God, and he responded to it. That might seem a little different, especially if you know that God has a calling on your life and you haven't responded to it. You're not in fellowship with him then. If he's called you to do something, obey him and do it. Set down your plans and take up his pleasure and do that. Elijah is just like you and me. But look what it says here. He prayed earnestly. That's probably a little bit of a deferment from the text. It's actually literal rendered more of the idea he prayed a prayer. It's not that he prayed so intense as if it was based on him for the reason why this prayer got answered. No, his prayer was heard. God was listening to him because he, con- he conducted his life in a fellowship experience with him. That's why he was listened to. So earnestly, he meant it. He was believing, yeah, but the power was not in Elijah. The power is what he understood that God was able to do. So notice he prayed that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. In prayer, do you look at the one with power? Do you look to him? The one that can save from death. As many funerals as we've seen, as many interactions with grieving families as we've had. Do you see him for who he is? And does that affect your prayers? Until we do, we will live questioning whether or not he is listening. Are your prayers being answered? Are you pious? not a bad question this may be intimidating to answer but then you have to ask where are your hope and interest at where do they lie if you're convicted by what you see because there's little of God in your daily affairs then the prayer to offer right now is one of repentance God I know this is what you want God I don't know your word enough God I constantly live for myself Lord, I just can't wait until he's done. Ask yourself whether or not that's evil. If that's the case, ask God to further convince your heart of his truth. And let's not live in any reliance on the world. God wants his children to lean into him. 
He wants His priests faithful in their service to Him. And this makes prayer a priority. But it will never be a priority if holiness is not a part of your life. So for prayer to be effective, holiness must be a priority. And I ask you to think about this. Just walking around your house and looking at the possessions that you have. What steps need to be taken in your life to draw near to God so that we never have to doubt that He's listening to our prayers? Let's pray. Father, we all need more of You. And there are often things in our lives that hurt our cohesion with Your will and Your ways. The terrible mistake that we often make is those are things that we make sure they stay in place. That they're so precious to us. That we care affectionately for them. We've invested so much energy and time and money and thought into those things. And you find that they are actually worldly separators from a divine experience. Regardless of what other people do, Grace Bible Church needs to be holy, set apart, relishing in the fellowship that freely flows from your throne. Coming boldly to the throne of grace as only we can because of Jesus. But equally understanding that you hear because our lives have been overturned and restructured according to your word. Maybe it's something as simple as we need to clean up our mouths. Maybe it's the fact that we need to get rid of our movies. Maybe we need to go home and start a bonfire. Our love of stuff keeps us from you. Maybe it's that bitterness that we still have and that unforgiveness that we cling so tightly to that keeps us from knowing you more. Whether it's material or immaterial, it doesn't matter. You know what it is. We know what it is. And we need to confess it and get rid of it and lay it down because the life you have for us is incredibly better from what we're settling for. Do we want more of you? Do we want to know that our prayers have been heard by the Almighty Creator? that that type of fellowship experience exists and it's theirs for our taking. And it's been available all this time. Hopefully today is a day where we've come head to head with this fact in Your Word. Maybe it's simply grabbing the hand of our wives and saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I love you. The floodgates would open our prayers to be heard. Where the Spirit needs to convict, Lord, we trust that You will do a corrective work in Your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.